Welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. Six months ago, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit near the Turkish-Syrian border. Tens of thousands of people lost their lives and millions have been left homeless. It is one of the most devastating earthquakes to ever hit the region, impacting an area the size of Germany. In this episode, we're trying to understand these seismic events and the methods being used by data scientists to try and reduce the damage they inflict on infrastructure and communities. We're joined by Harry Kumar of Geohazards International and Donald Wells of Fugro. Why don't we start by you giving us a, a bit of background on your careers in the industry? Thanks, John. So I'm Donald Wells. I, I work for Fugro in uh, Walnut Creek in California, in, in uh, Northern California, that is. I call myself, I'm an engineering geologist by trade, and my specialization is earthquake engineering, really. I've spent the last 35 years of my career working to find ways to mitigate the, the hazards from earthquakes. And we'll talk a little bit about a couple of different aspects of that today. Um, one of the things that um, this is fortunate and unfortunate, one of the ways that I've learned a lot about earthquakes is by visiting areas that have been damaged by earthquakes. So I've, I've, it's a, tr a tremendous step forward in learning to see what happens. And we use that information to try to provide engineers and architects with information that they can use to try to mitigate hazards. Um, and of course, as well as, as uh, local building officials and other people planning to planning for earthquakes or planners for where buildings might be constructed. Hello, everyone. I'm Hari Kumar. I work for Geohazards International, which is a not-for-profit organization based out of California. But I'm uh, in India. I run uh, the regional office of uh, Geohazards International, also called GHI. And uh, we uh, run operations in, in South Asia, in various countries, uh, with a very, very high seismic hazard. So I was agreeing to what uh, Donald was saying about, uh, you know, various uh, expertises coming together, because uh, really that happens. Uh, I mean, Donald was talking about a post-earthquake experience. And I was agreeing uh, because we do very similar things before earthquakes in developing scenarios. When we go to a, a place as a team and we look at a bridge and, and try to understand if this earthquake happens, what is going to happen to the soil? You know, what is what are going to be the effects of the, uh, uh, of the earthquake on that bridge, on the road? And if that bridge falls, what is going to be the effect on the community who, who depend on this bridge for rescue and relief? So, uh, you, you know, Sinat, uh, I, I completely agree with uh, Donald that, that it takes many sectors to come together. 
and it almost never happens. You know, it's always, you know, the engineers work in their silos, the architects work in their silos, the geologists, they don't talk to each other, they don't come together as often as they should in most of the countries where I work in. Earthquakes are notoriously unpredictable. What kind of data collection are we doing to better understand when and where and how strong these earthquakes are going to be? Well, some of the, uh, the, the basic information uh, to understand what kind of ground shaking can occur during an earthquake is to identify the sources of the earthquakes and how strong the earthquake will be, uh, the location of the earthquake, of course, uh, how strong it will be and how strong the ground will shake at your site, which might be at some distance, uh, you know, a kilometer or 100 kilometers from where the earthquake is occurring. The information, the types of sources are, are you know, are faults. And in most cases, faults there at the surface can be identified through careful investigations. and. That's done by geologists, um, specifically paleoseismologists and quaternary geologists who can interpret modern landforms and landforms that may have been formed by past earthquakes that may have occurred thousands of years ago or tens of thousands of years ago or 10 years ago. And uh, from those from those characteristics that they can see at the ground surface, you can identify both the length of the fault, how much it may have moved in previous earthquakes and um, how frequently the fault moves in, in a number of ways. How is that identification carried out? What data enables us to understand what is happening underground? There's um, data to be collected by really getting your hands dirty, as you were asking, by digging trenches and, and evaluating the soils. But there's also data that's collected from satellites um, using GPS data to monitor land movement. Um, if you have dense arrays of sensors, you can see where the land is moving. And even if the fault is not moving at the surface, at depth, the Earth is moving. So you can detect the movement of faults through satellite-based or even, um, uh, in some cases, local uh, survey networks that monitor land movement. Um, in some cases, faults are even actually actively moving at the surface that's called fault creep the hayward fault in california as well as well known for that as our parts in san andreas and there are several other faults in the world that creep as well and they deform things uh, along the way that, that cross them that's one of the ways you can easily find the fault but uh, basically geologists and others will map faults from uh you know by walking on the land by looking at aerial photographs and uh, satellite imagery identify the length of the fault and from that and other information on how on recording of earthquakes, um, we have seismographs that record earthquakes, um, we can estimate how deep the fault may extend and therefore we can understand the size of the fault and get the uh, approximate the magnitude of the fault for the given length or expected part of the fault that might rupture. Given that, then we uh, have to estimate how strong the ground is going to shake at a site. Um, and that's affected by a number of things, most particularly the type of, of soils that you're sitting on or rock. And then, of course, you have to assess, as Harry was uh, it, talking towards, you have to assess whether or not other kinds of things could happen at your site, whether the ground might liquefy if the soil 
if the water pressure becomes high enough that it basically causes the sand or fine grain materials to to liquefy and, and act more like a liquid than a solid. And that's a very dangerous situation for, for buildings, of course, if the foundations start to sink. That was the cause of some of the catastrophic failures in Christchurch during the 2011 earthquakes there. Um, there was also extensive liquefaction in, in the recent Turkey earthquakes as well, too. And um, I, I don't have details on specific buildings that failed, but I know there was extensive damage to a number of buildings uh, due to liquefaction effects. If you're on slopes, of course, the slopes can fail and landslides, and those also can cause catastrophic effects. I might be being a bit naive, but we have the most intricate geological maps nowadays, maps of fault zones. Surely a lot of this has already come together. We know where all these areas are weak. We've set up our sensors across all the high-risk areas and we're managing the process. Or as I say, am I just being naive about the scope of the challenge here? We're quite good at um, at mapping faults and uh, identifying where the earthquake sources are. We're good at uh, estimating the size of the earthquakes. Um, some specific examples, I had done a seismic hazard study for the city of Donna about five years ago. The city of Donna is in Texas, United States. I included the, the faults that ruptured. We characterized the maximum magnitude that could occur on those faults, and the, the mean estimate I chose was was probably a little low, but the the magnitude seven eight for the first earthquake was within the range of what we allowed as possible on that on that fault. So, you know, in a simple exercise we had done for a, a, a client with a, a facility in, in Adana, we we looked at these faults, we saw they could rupture, we had to estimate how frequently they would rupture. Um, and that, so that information, you're right, that information was known for the earthquakes in, in Turkey. And it, the faults in Turkey are pretty well known. The faults in California, by contrast, are, are quite well known. The sources there are generally pretty agreed to. There may be some small surprises, but basically, no, we know where earthquakes are going to occur. And we have a, in, in active parts of the world, active tectonic parts of the world, we have a pretty good understanding of how frequently they'll occur. In Stable regions of the world, um, such as the central and eastern U.S., as opposed to the west coast of the U.S. And why is that, Donald? Why is the situation so different if we're talking about having an understanding across the same country? The situation is fairly different. The faults are, aren't well known, the ones that cause sources. They may not have moved in 10,000 or 100,000 years. And so although we know where faults are, we don't know which ones might move. In stable continental regions, large earthquakes occur very infrequently um, uh, over, you know, an area of, of a good portion of, of Central Europe or portions of of Africa um, or portions of South America, such as, you know, a vast area around Brazil, which are called stable continental regions. Earthquakes are, are, are rare, um, but in that sense, we still have trouble identifying, we have trouble identifying the exact locations of, of the next big earthquake there. And it's um, it's a difficult in that you can spend a lot of money trying to prepare for it, but it's, it's much less likely to occur than it is in, in other parts of the world. And uh, this was a, a significant issue to 
of consideration in the United States in terms of, of how do you design for rare earthquakes in the eastern United eastern or central United States versus more common or frequent large earthquakes on the on the mm. west coast? And do you hold buildings all to the same standard across that region? It becomes very expensive to to strengthen everything you know, across the entire United States when the earthquakes are so infrequent, so far apart, and so rare compared to California, where we know we need to be prepared. So Harry, how do we go about utilizing this data being collected most effectively? This intelligence is very important because we need, we we work in, in areas where, uh, you know, GHI as an organization, there are many organizations like ours, uh, work uh, where an earthquake has not happened. We, we, we work before and even because we are working on the mitigation side, we are trying to reduce the risk and trying to get people prepared. So, you know, uh, we don't have that. Uh, you know, they, they say that after an earthquake, you get a window of opportunity when people are ready to listen to you. They have just been through an earthquake and they are ready to listen to you. Harry, this window of opportunity, when, when people are more willing to listen, is this when governments and stakeholders either try to, to reinforce existing construction codes or establish new ones? If you ask them to change the codes, they will. More, more likely uh, to, to change the codes or uh, they will at least promise that they will enforce uh, uh, you know, the code well. But uh, when we work before earthquakes, we need to be able to communicate the risk well. Uh, when to people who are not in a mood to listen to you, uh, and, and uh, this uh, for for uh, me working with uh, GHI and and working on scenarios has really opened my mind about how to communicate risk, which is which is really really important. Can you share with us an example of how you've seen this risk communicated effectively? GHI in 1995. We worked in Kathmandu, in Nepal, which is uh, a, a very high-risk, seismic-risk uh, uh, zone area. And, and we developed, we worked with, uh, with uh, local organizations, local people, local governments, uh, to develop uh, a scenario of an earthquake affecting Kathmandu. And, and we had people like Donald come in and tell us, which are the faults which can create an earthquake that will affect this city. How big will they be? Uh, you know, what will be the characteristics of the, that shaking? And, and then we brought together uh, a team of experts who will take this information and see what is going to happen to the roads leading to Kathmandu, what is going to happen to the bridges uh, that are connecting uh, Kathmandu or in Kathmandu, what is going to happen to the airport of Kathmandu, what is going to happen to the water supply, what is going to happen to the power infrastructure the schools, the hospitals. So these teams of people come together. Mm. They look at their own their own uh, sectors of expertise. And then finally, when they put all, everything together, we work out the scenario, what will happen if the earthquake strikes, the earthquake that Donald mentioned will strike in the daytime or what will happen if it happens in the nighttime. Does showing people the data help them better understand the risk? Yes, I mean, we 
don't have the luxury of that earthquake which has just happened. Mm. So we have to create the scenario of what will happen if this earthquake strikes and create this window, window of opportunity by using creating the scenario and telling them that there will be this kind of damage in that bridge, this kind of damage in that hospital, and that hospital will not possibly be available to you after an earthquake when you need it. You know, and, and we give them that scenario. And then we also include a set of recommendations. If this kind of scenario should not happen, your road sector should take care of A, B, C, D, 20 things possibly. Uh, you know, the hospitals need to do these things. So there will be a set of recommendations for them to take up in the long term. So that is how a scenario works where we give them information. It is, it is, uh, you know, uh, it is not a prediction. Uh, it is, uh, it is telling you what exactly can happen to your city if the earthquake, which uh, Donald mentioned, can happen. And that wakes them up. Most, mm. more often than not, it wakes them up because we are giving them specific. It's not something abstract like, oh, 20,000 people die in your city. It's not abstract like that. We are telling them action details of what can happen. And that is how we use the information which we get from, from Donald. But we need to add many other sectors to it before we can come out with a scenario. And, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about scenario maybe as we go along. Okay. Uh, because the communication of the risk is, uh, you know, to common people, uh, we, we probably might need to create uh, a story of what, what happens to uh, a particular form, family. In Kathmandu, that is what we did. We followed a family during the earthquake, what happened in their, their home. Uh, some of them were in school, some of them were outside working. And we followed them uh, throughout you know, the days after the earthquake, how slowly, by showing, focusing on them, we were showing how the city recovered as well, how the city responded as well. Earlier, we mentioned the Turkey-Syria earthquake. So maybe, maybe we can focus on that for a moment. Can you tell us about this event and the impact it's had from your two perspectives? I'm, again, devastated to see so much loss of life and, and property in, in, a, in a, a very large earthquake. Um, um, it, the earthquake occurred on, on a well-known fault. Uh, as I mentioned before, I had looked at this fault and included it in studies to evaluate what could happen to uh, to buildings in Adana. But in, in this case, it it really looks like, um, unfortunately, that the the buildings were not up to the task of withstanding the ground motions. You know, the loss of life is is due to collapse of of structures by by far and away. Turkey's um, has a, a good strong motion network. Um, they have a lot of information on faults. The the hazards are well known. As you mentioned, they've had major earthquakes. They had a whole sequence starting in, in 1939 that uh, ruptured over a 40-ish or so year period across this very long fault, the North Anatolian Fault, as it's called. It's similar to the San Andreas Fault in California in, in terms of length and the size of the earthquakes. Um, the East Anatolian Fault, which is the one that caused the February 6th earthquake, um, it runs into that in the eastern part of Turkey. It, uh, it, it, it again, is another major fault, to, and it um, is also was also capable of a very large earthquake, so um, perhaps a little larger than we might have expected. 
um, it caused you know very strong shaking um, but I don't think the shaking was unusually large for the size of the earthquake it was just a very large earthquake and the, the building codes perhaps were not um, strong enough in this area for the size of the earthquake that actually occurred, um, but more, I think it was in the implementation of, of the construction and, and some of the details in that. And Turkey's had a tremendous amount of growth over the last 20 years, and there's just been a rush to get everything done. And I, I understood in some cases there were really just shortages of engineers who really knew how to build buildings. and. Ms. Hari might come back and talk to a, a shortage of, of good structural engineers who also understood earthquake engineering and how to properly design and, and, and construct buildings to, to prevent loss of, of, of their capacity. And, and, and let me step, let me go back on that. Um, how to um, design buildings such that you know they won't collapse. And that's the basic standard for buildings in, in the world is you design it not to collapse and kill people. It's, it's harder to make them such that they aren't damaged at all. Um, some buildings are held to that standard, nuclear power plants, for example, um, bridges and hospitals are, are usually held to higher standards so that they can remain functional and operational after an earthquake because they're, they're needed. Um, or emergency facilities are typically in that kind of category too. But uh, often, and as it appears to be the case in Turkey, there just was not enough expertise spread across, you know, the, the, the extent of the country to allow all the buildings to be built properly. Harry, surely a lot of these buildings are designed not to collapse during earthquakes. Yet they did. They, they do. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, yeah. But for Turkey, you know, I was really impressed by what Turkey did after the 1999 uh, Izmit earthquake, which killed thousands of people, far less than what, what happened now. Uh, and they had re reinforced their building codes since. But, but it is in human nature to, you know, the earth, interest in earthquake risk reduction is sustained only for a few years after any earthquake anywhere in the world. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the graph has to come down and the window of opportunity uh, you know, uh, closest, uh, and and we we as as people working in this field must take that opportunity to deliver awareness, technology, and and solutions. And uh, um, Donald mentioned uh, earthquake codes. Uh, you know, I mean, Turkey has excellent codes, but these codes are just paper if you don't uh, enforce them. You know, they are not followed. They are not enforced. In in India, um, the the earthquake codes are are technically reasonably sound, but are recommendatory. These are not mandatory. They become mandatory when they are adopted by city level building regulations. So you have good codes, but the city may adopt them or won't adopt them sometimes. And and uh, so many of us get away without following the codes, even though we have the codes, because these have not been made mandatory by the city in which I'm living. Another, I think in Turkey, I think, uh, you know, another policy decision that has led to more deaths uh, and will lead to more deaths in more cities in future earthquakes is that magic, magic wand that uh, many governments wave of regularization. That buildings are built without any consideration to the codes or the prevalent earthquake hazard. 
you know and and somehow they these buildings are poorly built and they're just beating gravity uh, so far uh, but these are given amnesty and are regularized regularized without any kind of assessment or corrective action just by paying a fee you know you you build a bad building and later on you are allowed to you know sell it or live in it by just paying a fee and you can imagine the people in in poor areas which who who uh, you know eke out a living and they have to create the 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 funds to buy this building which is not not built as per earthquake resistant codes and then they have to pay the government to regularize it without you know knowing that they are buying a tomb for their families it's, it's really that sad is it a fair observation that it was mostly housing that collapsed and major pieces of infrastructure were more resilient in Turkey. I, I was going to comment on that, John. Um, I, I think yeah, we do. We don't want to forget that there were a lot of successes in, in, in Turkey. Um, you know, most of the infrastructure did come through um, and survived quite well. There are a number of reasons for that. It again those that kind of infrastructure is often held to higher standards in terms of of what it is expected to to how it's expected to perform in some cases it's larger um, international conglomerates or or organizations that are that are putting together some of this work it's larger teams and they you know have their own if one level they have their own reputations to to protect they don't want to be you know associated with bad buildings but also they all tend to have you know broader expertise across these companies too and a, and a better understanding of earthquakes and um, when I was talking to Hari a couple of weeks ago he had talked about you know how they have really good structural engineers in India but they didn't know about earthquake engineering and and that again was probably one of the contributions contributor contributing issues to the the poor performance of the buildings in Turkey is that the people knew how to build buildings, but they didn't know how to make them withstand earthquakes, or they didn't understand the importance of that. And in doing so, you know, they built things that they, you know, perform fine under gravity loads, but, you know, were, were not going to perform in the least once they started, once they started moving or once the ground underneath them started to, to deform too. But uh, as I said, for, for bridges, tunnels, power plants, um, there's often a, a lot more care taken in building those, but there's often more oversight over them because they have to perform all the time. Um, they, they have to withstand storms and they have to withstand just uh, continual usage. So large infrastructure projects are, are shown to be more resilient when an earthquake strikes. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between construction codes for housing projects versus large infrastructure projects and how codes are adhered to? I'll just uh, touch upon what John just mentioned about bridges and major infrastructure being uh, more resilient than, than housing. Actually, you know, when I mentioned about the codes being not mandatory, uh, they're not mandatory for uh, housing but when the government builds infrastructure they often in, you know they refer to the code and uh, the contractors have to follow the code in most cases 
large infrastructure uh, are built as per as per the code. And there are capacities, like I uh, 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 mentioned, there are capacities in good structural engineers uh, available. Uh, I, I was talking about a project uh, about 20 years back when we, we started working on a project to retrofit some lifeline buildings in, in Delhi, in the national capital of India. Uh, in Delhi, we, we, uh, the government of India wanted some technical expertise from uh, GHI uh, to uh, assist uh, in developing the capacities of local engineers to retrofit large buildings and you know to understand because um, India had done a lot of retrofit of smaller school type of buildings but not the large ones and and uh, uh, you know we we came across wonderful structural engineers but who had not ever studied earthquake engineering in in their curriculum because in that point of time I'm talking about 20 years back earthquakes were not even mentioned in our civil engineering curriculum at that point of time. So it was uh, a, a new introduction when they were interacting with, uh, you know, the William Holmes and, and, and uh, Melvin Greens of, of California, uh, who bring their years and years of uh, expertise and, and uh, you know, worked with closely with them uh, in analyzing the buildings which they selected. Uh, it, was, it was wonderful to see the transformation of these engineers from people who understood structures mm -hmm. but did not understand the effects of the earthquake. And uh, what Donald mentioned about certain uh, types of buildings uh, which need to perform uh, much better than the normal buildings, I mean, where in the normal buildings we are only looking at collapse prevention, but in a hospital we are looking at something called immediate occupancy. This is uh, looking at you know the performance of the building in an earthquake. So we are not only looking at, when, when you are talking about immediate occupancy, we are not only looking at how the structure behaves. We are looking at whether that electricity in that building will continue to uh, serve the, the building, water supply will continue to serve, mm. the false ceilings will remain there, the false ceilings. The, in, in a hospital, your operation theater lights don't fall down. Mm. All of this will add to the functionality of that hospital. So we were looking at something which the engineers in Delhi had not even thought about earlier as part of their work. I feel that is such an important point you raise, Harry. You talk about the attention fading away one or two years after the earthquake. But what, what you've just described, surely, is part of the long-term solution, engaging those structural engineers, exciting them making it relevant, improving their skill set into this area of earthquake engineering. And, and all of a sudden, yes, they're very satisfied and better properties get built. It is. In, in, in the Delhi, uh, I'm, I'm just still talking about that example, we, we try to make it as sustainable as possible by creating a retrofitting circle, a wing, a new wing for retrofitting uh, in within the public works department of the government, and and uh, so this was the group of experts who were doing the training, and these uh, young engineers who learned these uh, technologies and who worked with the the mentors, 
actually found it exciting that now they are looked upon by other engineers as the experts mm. and they are mm. the ones who are doing the training uh, so it, it was a, actually a win-win situation for us because you know we could get a good set of engineers uh, whose capacities were built but there were also others to whom these capacities are being transferred to turning to where you are donald in california another area that experiences a lot of seismic activity how strong are the codes there and are they effectively enforced in california for example um you know residential homes are, are they're built to whatever code was you know whenever they were built whatever code was enforced and mm. and in in california fortunately for for the building stock here homes tend to be built actually to the code there aren't a lot of corners cut and at least not in, in a widespread manner which is one of the things that appears may have happened in turkey is that you know many many buildings were not built to you know to the the standards that they needed to be built but there are regulations that require uh, disclosure during purchase of homes in California to identify whether you're in a seismic hazard zone for a fault rupture hazard or liquefaction or landslide. And so in that sense, there's a little bit of a warning as to what could go wrong at the house. But the, the structure itself, the structural integrity of the house, there's no particular warning on that, except if you're smart enough to understand if it was built to an older code that it might not be up to snuff unless someone has done some work such as strengthening the foundation underneath mm. the house um, and that's that's common in california to go in and add you know uh, uh metal plates that tie different portions of your foundation together uh shear paneling um both on the walls of the house or at least under what are called cripple walls which are these you know short little walls that you know the the first floor of the house is up three or four feet off the ground on a little short wall and so strengthening those walls to prevent the house from falling off those walls that's that's been done extensively through the, the bay area people don't want their houses to fall down and that, that's a common method of construction in northern california to have cripple walls under houses i wanted just to wrap up our conversation and and ask you what changes in approach or practice you would like to see going forward how do you see the future how do you see us progressing down this path? Well, the, the first basic component, of course, is, is having the appropriate codes um, in place. And as, as, as Har has mentioned, the next step is actually you know, helping people to understand the importance of, of building to those codes and not bypassing them uh, because it was convenient or because they didn't understand and know. So, you know, those two components, making sure that the codes provide, you know, the in theory would provide the resilience you would need across all kinds of of infrastructure and buildings themselves but also providing the information and knowledge that you know so that engineers and and architects and and local government officials in particular understand the importance of of actually executing those properly yeah uh john i think uh, this this is a this is a very very important point i mean to to answer a bit of what you mentioned in the previous question uh, about whether there is full disclosure about uh, the earthquake resistance or not uh, i don't think uh, it, it it is happening in any 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 of the countries uh, we are working in south asia it cannot happen because uh, if if uh, e- even if i mention here this building is built as per the code of 1989 or something like that um, you know the the value of that building will come down 
So no builder will allow that. Nobody will allow that. Uh, you, you know, so uh, you, you know, definitely not in the rules, and uh, it's, it's not something which uh, uh, you know is going to happen anytime, anytime soon. Uh, and um, many of our, our countries are developing uh, in in South Asia. Many of us are developing, and many of the nations are in a hurry. You, you know, uh, we we probably are adding risk. Uh, by the hour, uh, because we are not taking enough care to integrate earthquake resistance or disaster uh, resistance into our develop, development. Uh, I mean, there are many, many reasons. Uh, you, you know, uh, in Turkey, I, I heard about uh, a, a new rule which gave this amnesty to unauthorized buildings uh, in 2018. And, and uh, Many of the politicians or, or leaders were saying that, okay, by this new rule, I have solved the problems of 60,000 people. It is the community's perceptions that we need to work on because they should understand that these codes are there for them. Uh, they need to be aware that, you know, they should not uh, sidestep these because it is for their own safety. And it, it takes a a lot to be able to get the community to come to that level. Uh, GHI has achieved some kind of successes in a few hill hill towns where we work, worked on creating the scenario. We showed them what happened and we helped them develop new regulations because they were just, uh, you know, their, their uh, excavations uh, on steep hillsides. You, you know, you're excavating your own land but you're jeopardizing the land above you, the building above you. So this is a, a practice which is going on. And finally, they will put some kind of a band-aid kind of solutions and close it all up. And nobody will know there are weak foundations up there. But the earthquake will know. And, 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 and so now, uh, with a lot more awareness, not a lot more work on getting the people to understand why you shouldn't be doing these kind of things. There is a lot more awareness and there's a lot more acceptance of the building regulations. And what it takes, it's a long road to, to that. Uh, but we need to work on both the decision makers and the community, uh, you know, for long-term uh, risk reduction. Donald, can I ask one final question? Is there anything else not being done that you would like to see help speed up this process? I was thinking through one other thing that I would like to see, um, and I, this has been implemented in part in, in some of the, the, the laws passed in California, is, is to, to try to find ways to provide things that are incentives to improve buildings rather than just penalizing you by saying you must do this. And once you say you must do it, then the building industry in the United States fights tooth and nail against having to spend more money to make housing more, more expensive. But finding incentives to do that, whether it's through tax breaks or other other methods to you know, encourage people to do things has been much more productive in the United States and in, in terms of getting businesses and, uh, and, and owners to be willing to put a little bit of extra money into making a building better. And it's typically only a few percent of the overall cost in a new building to, to 
you know, to improve the resilience of it, say, from just being designed for collapse prevention to being operational or to being immediately repairable after an earthquake. And that's one of the considerations in the U.S. at the moment is, is you know, should we be, you know, should we be designing to, you know, make it repairable rather than just won't collapse? Because often the buildings that, you know, if they get to a not collapse level, then they tend to have to be torn down. And that's certainly happened in Turkey. Most of the buildings that were damaged there that didn't collapse will still have to be torn down because they're not repairable. And the cost for that is, is just enormous to tear things down and rebuild them all over again. So at what point is there benefit to society by making you know buildings built to a little bit better standard? And it's not very expensive up front, but it's very hard to fix retroactively. And so finding incentives to get property owners and building owners to improve the existing building stock is, is, is a, another area where there, I'd like to see more progress in that. Well, thank you so much, Donald and Harry, for this fascinating discussion. It, it's amazing to hear both how far we've come, but how much further we still have left to go to really help mitigate the devastation earthquakes cause. There are millions of people in Turkey and Syria who are still dealing with the impact of the earthquake six months on. If you would like to help with the recovery, we've included a link to the Red Cross in the show notes. The Red Cross have provided shelter, food, water, and medical care to millions of people impacted by the earthquake. And until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>